You're listening to Washington Post Live's First Look podcast with Michael Duffy. Good morning and welcome to First Look, WashingtonPostLive.com's early morning analysis and news show uh, here on Friday. I'm Michael Duffy. I'm opinions editor at large here at The Post. Our guest this morning is John Hudson, national security reporter for The Washington Post. Welcome back, John. Hey, good to be with you. It's been almost a year since Russia invaded Ukraine. This week, President Biden announced another package of military aid for Ukraine. Let's listen to what he said. Today, I'm announcing that the United States will be sending 31 Abram tanks to Ukraine the equivalent of one Ukrainian battalion. Secretary Austin has recommended this step because it will enhance the Ukraine's capacity to defend its territory and achieve its strategic objectives. The Abrams tanks are the most capable tanks in the world. <clears throat> They're also extremely complex to operate and maintain. So we're also giving Ukraine the parts and equipment necessary to effectively sustain these tanks on the battlefield. John, what's the military significance of having 31 tanks, 31 Abrams tanks in Ukraine? Well, that significance is going to come out of when they actually arrive and are usable in Ukraine. The, all the indications we have right now is those Abrams tanks will be some of the last tanks usable um, for the Ukrainians. The biggest military significance was that sending, agreeing to send these Abrams tanks effectively unlocked the Europeans uh, and, and the Germans specifically um, to send their leopard tanks, which uh, the analysts believe will be able to be used much more quickly uh, and sent to Ukraine um, for a sort of immediate use in the battlefield. Now, obviously, there's going to be a lag for those as well. Um, they need to get trained up on them. They need to get actually into the country. Um, but those things should be uh, uh, those tanks should be usable uh, much sooner. Um, obviously, what right now, um, Ukraine is at a pretty critical juncture in the war. It is fighting something of a war of attrition in the east near uh, the city of Bakhmut, where Russians and Ukrainians are expending a lot of blood and treasure. Uh, and you have both Ukraine and Russia at the same time planning spring offensives. Uh, those spring offensives are going to be um, pretty important, at least for Ukraine's uh, efforts to try to retake back its territory, for Russia's efforts to gain more territory. And tanks are going to be sort of the coin of the realm when it comes to these battles. Arm armored vehicles, having them uh, and having the ability to move troops uh, closer to the front lines, uh, it, it's, it's going to be critical. So that's why uh, this announcement is, is so significant. Germany said it wasn't going to be willing to send its leopards unless the United States sent the Abrams tanks. So even though these Abrams won't arrive as quickly, um, they have unlocked this important German decision. Right. I gather it takes some months actually to get the Abrams uh, even up and running there. I was going to ask, what's the significance now suddenly of having heavy armor? Generally, no matter whose tanks they are, especially in an urban environment, what is, how does heavy armor change the situation? Yeah, well, uh, right now you have a huge amounts of casualties being expended um, at the front lines. Obviously, you know, in many ways, this is a war of us artillery war. Uh, and so you have, um, you know, 
horrific amounts of, of shrapnel um, coming down uh, and, you know, ripping through humans. Uh, and to have um, some of your forces, especially well-trained forces, able to move forward and inch forward uh, in an armored vehicle is, is critical, uh, especially when as you're trying to hold the line. Um, it, uh, yeah, in, in it's yeah. yeah, I was going to say, as the, as the U.S. was trying to make up its mind about whether to send these tanks, uh, was the concern logistical or was it co the concern that it would somehow escalate the conflict further? Yeah, there was a range of concerns, but the, really, if you talk to people, um, especially ones that are familiar with our leadership at the Pentagon, uh, they viewed the Abrams tank, which takes jet fuel, is an extremely complex uh, piece of machinery as something that would take way too long for the Ukrainians to get um, trained up on. Is something that is extremely expensive uh, and could get pr fairly quickly destroyed by the Russians. Uh, and they, they just believe, viewed it as logistically not something that would be particularly helpful for the Ukrainians. Those views actually continue and persist within our military and uh, defense establishment. Right. Uh, but they view that it more important to unlock those German tanks. So if this is the way to do it, they felt like that was ultimately the, the higher good. Uh, and what connection to this move do you see to any diplomatic maneuvers? Uh, we've been through a couple of waves of that, um, but uh, right now, uh, what's the prognosis? Um, well, uh, diplomatically, uh, there was a significant effort to get uh, all of the, the alliance on the same side. And Germany was taking a huge bruising when it came to being viewed as the Western country that was always slowest to act. Uh, always the voice of reservation. And they, of course, needed to sign off on all Leopard tanks going there because that's where Leopards were manufactured uh, and that's where the intellectual property rights are held. So um, uh, basically, it's been the real goal of Secretary of State Blinken to make sure that no one is too embarrassed. There's no, you know, there's face-saving moves as this goes along and, and sending the Abrams gave the Germans a face saving move uh, to say that, you know, they wanted to move in lockstep as an alliance. And now you have all the nations, you have the Brits, you have the Americans and you have the French. And then you'll see the Poles and, and others sending armored vehicles uh, to the battlefront. Do U.S. officials expect a Russian offensive uh, in the coming weeks? There is a lot of expectation. Uh, people have seen as the, um, the, the the Russians have moved about 150,000 troops, up to 300,000 troops in Ukraine, and they're also recruiting and mobilizing troops all the time. Uh, the, there's there's an expectation that those troops uh, are going to be used uh, to to move in. You know, there are some also some skeptics saying that the Russians are spread thin and they might not be able to. But uh, I believe the prevailing wisdom is that there could be um, an offensive, uh, no one knows exactly where. Uh, there's also, you know, concerns that the offensive could come through uh, neighboring Belarus, uh, and there could be another effort to come down through Western Ukraine and cut off 
uh, supply lines coming from the West. So no one knows exactly where the Russians are moving. Um, you know, there was uh, you know, obviously U.S. intelligence uh, is something that's more tightly guarded. Uh, the CIA director, Bill Burns, uh, recently traveled to Ukraine uh, to update the Ukrainians on his assessment uh, of what the Russians are planning. Uh, that remains a tightly guarded secret, but uh, um, at least U.S. officials would hope that, that the intelligence community has a good window into what the Russians are planning. Is there any, uh, last question, uh, John, is there any, uh, because this is such a complicated weapon system and takes so much time to train, will U.S. forces be in Ukraine training uh, their counterparts? And if not, where are they going to train them to do it? Well, that's a that's a great question. You know, there there has been a lot of training um, happening in in Poland. Uh, the Brits have been training um, the Ukrainians there in Britain. Um, the, the you know it, it's not a, none of this has been made clear how logistically this is going to um, take place. Uh, it, it, what is known is that it is going to take some time. Uh, but you know, the Ukrainians have shown an incredible ability to use new equipment. Uh, get a handle on it and uh, immediately apply it to the battlefield. So I, I think a lot of those details are going to be spelled out in the, the coming weeks and months. Uh, but what I've heard from officials is do not expect these things to be used in the battlefield anytime soon. This was more of a diplomatic decision to un unlock uh, the German leopards. Okay, great. Well, we're going to leave it there, John. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Yeah, great to be with you. I want to continue our program now with opinions columnists E.J. Dion and Megan McArdle. Good to see you guys. Good morning. Good to be with you. Um, so, E.J., let's stick with Ukraine for a second. Uh, another large package of military security is heading that way. The Council on Foreign Relations uh, yesterday, I think, estimates that the United States has now sent about $50 billion worth of military aid to Ukraine. Uh, since the beginning of the war, almost a year ago. Uh, is there an end in sight to this? Are we going to be doing this for another year or two? What's your expectation? I think that in all likelihood, we'll be doing this for a long time, certainly another uh, year. And while there is some Republican opposition to continuing this, I think a, a the vast majority of Democrats, and I suspect a majority of Republicans, want to continue to stand up uh, to Russian aggression. I think that what you got going on here are two tensions. The headline is solidarity among democratic countries against the Russian invasion. That's a true headline. But beneath right. it, you've got a tension between Biden and Zelensky that's kind of natural. Zelensky, President Zelensky of Ukraine, wants every bit of help he can get. Biden is trying to calibrate this to help Ukraine as much as he can without risking World War III or getting NATO or the U.S. directly involved. And then I also think there's a tension between frontline countries in Europe, Poland and the Baltic states, and Germany, which is a little more reluctant uh, to uh, come in uh, full force. And that's why this compromise, we promised the Abrams down the road uh, to make it easier for Olaf Scholz, the German chancellor, to give them the leopards. And it worked out. Another compromise in this coalition has kept it moving forward. 
Megan, uh, tell me what you uh, make of the American public support for this uh, effort so far. Is it uh, are they are, are Americans generally uh, pretty engaged in supporting uh, Ukraine? And do you think that's unlimited? I don't think we're that engaged about it, right? I think that it, it's a sort of interesting, I, you know, I was too young to remember Vietnam, but I imagine that this is a little bit like what that was in the early days where like it's happening in the background and there's decent support for it, but people are just not paying that much attention on a day-to-day -day basis because we've got other domestic issues that we're more worried about. I mean, foreign policy for the United States, because we are you know, separated from major uh, power consistation by two oceans, it's always been kind of the redheaded stepchild of politics. We do a lot of it, um, but the public does not have sort of firm, strong, steadfast opinions about it. It's it sort of we get interested in it when it's at the top of the news cycle. And then as soon as it drops down a little bit, we get distracted by other things. And I think that that might be a challenge going forward, keeping up with this, because there is a faction of the Republican Party. Um, that does want to dial this back, you know, in part because they've now defined themselves as anti-war in this strange way as as the uh, the opponents of the Republican establishment that got us into Iraq. Um, and also just, I think, sort of oppositionally, Democrats like this, therefore they don't. Um, and right now, I don't think that that's a big issue. But I do think that as this evolves, because there isn't, I, I think we're going to be, this is a long haul effort, right? This is not going to be over in the next week. Um, that the American public could tire of it quite quickly, um, especially with Republicans sort of pushing the exhaustion button. Okay, so EJ, talk to us a little more about that. You know, when uh, Kevin McCarthy became speaker, he, even before, he said, uh, we're not gonna give Ukraine a blank check. That doesn't, didn't mean they weren't gonna help uh, fund the effort, but has so far has uh, that warning, McCarthy's uh, caution uh, manifested itself in any way? Have you, have you seen signs that they uh, actually intend to uh, uh, do anything to you know turn the spigot off for Ukraine? Uh, not yet. I, I think that a lot of money was front loaded, if you will, to Ukraine uh, in the omnibus budget the last time because uh, you know pro, if you will, pro Ukraine Republicans and Democrats wanted to get enough money out there before there was any sort of fight in Congress. As Megan suggested, I think. There is a, a significant part, but I don't still don't think a majority part of the Republican Party uh, that is, uh, you know, a non-interventionist is going back to where parts of the party were in the 1930s and saying, you know, co-war is over. We, you know, are going to be non-interventionists. They are also, to use an old phrase, kind of Asialationists, which is if we're going to focus anywhere, we should focus on China. The thing is, I don't think opposition to this war um, is going to grow too much. There's also, by the way, a small part of the Democratic Party that's also uh, anti-interventionist. But I don't think um, opposition to this war is going to grow very much because American troops aren't involved. And it's obviously a lot easier for the U.S. to give money and equipment without stirring up enormous uh, political opposition. And I think Biden is being very careful to say, we're not going to send American troops uh, into Ukraine. And Ukraine has been successful enough uh, without them that that issue has not, and I don't think will come up. Yeah, just the hesitation about the tanks alone was uh, sort of bore witness to what you're saying. Um, Megan, let's talk about the economy, just because it's so interesting. Uh, in the last week, we've had uh, record uh, employment 
uh, reports, as well as spectacularly, what seems to be spectacularly large uh, layoffs in the tech sector. Um, reconcile those two. Tell us what's going on in your view. Well, I wish I could. Um, it, this is a really strange economy, right? On the one hand, job growth remains strong. On the other hand, we are seeing, not just in the tech sector, sadly in the media as well, um, we are seeing that, that there are industries that have been affected by higher interest rates. Banking is another one where lay, layoffs are uh, occurring. And that doesn't seem to be rolling yet into the general economy. But what I think it does seem to be rolling into is a sense of unease. And so if you looked at the GDP report, one of the things that you saw was that, well, the headline growth figure was pretty good. Uh, consumer spending had not was not where economists expected it to be. It was below target. And I think that that speaks to possibly the fact that, look, when the media is experiencing layoffs, we transmit our anxiety to everyone else, right? We sort of look at it, we're like, no, I don't know what this headline number is doing. Everything's terrible, guys. Can't you see? Um, and I, But whatever that is, whether it is the higher cost of living, which is definitely an issue, real wage growth is not kept up with inflation, um, or whether it is you know, bad economic news, the, our anxiety infecting America, or whether it's higher interest rates. And you know, America has always been a very heavy credit economy. Our consumers like to borrow and spend like nowhere else in the world. Um, whatever it is, those things are feeding into consumers pulling back a little bit. And the issue with that is that you know, that can cycle, right? Is everyone's uh, savings is someone else's income. So as consumers try to maybe build up a little more of a buffer, uh, you know, after they've spent through their pandemic money, the, then companies take a signal of, oh, wait, wait, maybe I shouldn't produce as much. Maybe I shouldn't fill that open slot. Maybe I should reduce my headcount a little bit. And that that can cycle into, into broader uh, economic malaise. Uh, EJ, were the doomsayers wrong? A lot of people had predicted a recession by now. Some people saying it might not come, may not come till the end of next year. Uh, a lot of uh, jockeying in the in the in the prognosticators camp. Um, uh, uh, what do you make of that whole uh, behind the scenes uh, expectations game, particularly as it uh, resonates politically? Well, I love to say the doomsayers were wrong. It's just a fun thing always to be able to say when you could say it. Um, and I think, look, we it, it is kind of miraculous uh, that uh, public policy actually worked remarkably well when you think about the hole that the pandemic put us in uh, back in 2020. And there was a concerted effort by both the Fed and the federal government uh, under Trump and uh, you know with Democratic help in Congress uh, and then continuing at the beginning of the Biden administration to make sure, um, that the economy uh, came out of this, and it did, and it started growing. Then there were fears of inflation, and inflation started showing up. The Fed has had these whopping big interest rate increases, unusually big jumps in interest rates. So, of course, there's some uh, pulling back now. Um, truth of the matter is, I don't know, and I don't think anybody fully knows where this is going to go in the next year. Um, I think that, you know, economists are kind of split. Uh, Harry Truman always said he wished he could find a one-handed uh, economist. Um, I think there are a lot of economists think we're going to sort of get into a sluggish economy for a little while. But there is hope that the Fed may have calibrated it more or less right uh, and that the economy is strong enough that we'll have what is called a soft landing, which is basically avoid a recession. And we, we actually have a shot of avoiding a recession 
right now, which I don't think a lot of people expected, uh, you know, four, six, eight months ago. Uh, Megan, you agree with that? It's up for it's up for grabs. Look, I think that two of my favorite quotes uh, to go with the one handed economist are, uh, you know, economists have predicted nine out of the last five recessions. Um, and and also predictions are hard, especially about the future from the great Yogi Berra. Yogi Berra, God bless him. <laughs> yes, it, it, it really is. I, I remember watching one of my professors in business school was asked, you know, is there going to be a recession? He was like, well, or what was going to happen to the stock market? And he said, well, it's going to go up or it's gonna go down, or it's gonna stay the same. And I think that's, you never actually need, what we can see is that there are trouble signs, right? Higher interest rates are hard on the economy. You've got big layoffs in some major growth sectors like tech, uh, where there's sudden, for the first time in de a decade, there's pressure for profitability. Um, I, but on the other hand, you know, we, we are, I think, still a fundamentally strong economy. I think they, it's hard to know what is going to happen in the next year or so, just that like we are facing difficult times. And I think that consumers are going to have to think about, do they want to build up that buffer or do they want to keep spending like there's no tomorrow? Right. It does okay. Seem, That's just parenthetically, the stock yeah, market really seems to want to believe a positive story. It keeps trying to find ways to go up. Uh, so much so the Fed sometimes has to kind of say things to knock it down a little bit. It's a very odd thing that's been going on there. Okay. Well, I think uh, now, I, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry, Jay. Like, I think if you think about how many sort of desperate boomers there are who are dependent on the stock market going up <laughs> in order to fund their retirement, you know, hope is always going to spring eternal. All right. I want both your assessments of where we are a week or so after the uh, the latest turns in the uh, classified document uh, story. Um, uh, is this affecting uh, anybody's long-term prospects yet uh, uh, for 2024? Both the president and the former president have, have had their problems. Uh, they're uh, similar but different. Um, now, other people may have classified documents. Uh, how does this uh, net out? Do, do either of you have a, a feeling? Um, look, I never actually thought that the classified document scandal was going to be as big a deal as Democrats hoped. Um, I, it's not that I'm arguing that, you know, what Trump did is okay. Uh, but I don't think that, I think in general, the American public does not care about procedural crimes the way that Washington elites do. And I'm not saying that the, the, the Washington elites are wrong. I just think that objectively people don't care. You have these procedural scandals and they almost never go anywhere. And you think about something like Bill Clinton right, lying about having sex with an intern. Um, and, you know, I think that, in fact, now there's a Me Too case against that. But what Republicans ended up trying to make was a procedural case on perjury, and it just didn't go anywhere outside of their own coalition. And I think the Democrats have had similar problems uh, with some of the January 6th stuff, which is, again, I think that what Trump did was reprehensible, and I think it was also unpopular. But I don't think that the American public feels that it is a kind of existential threat to the republic in the way that Democrats did, and that ultimately didn't help them that much to to make the kind of massive federal case that they did about it with the hearings. I think similarly, even more so with the classified documents, I think that it is very dangerous to just have classified documents lying around your hotel but the American public just doesn't care that much. They are not proceduralists. They care about kind of outcomes. And I think that now you have Joe Biden, turns out, also has some problems mishandling documents. I don't think they're equivalent. We can talk about all the ways in which they're different, but it doesn't matter. That made any chance that you had 
of making the case that Donald Trump was was engaging in dangerous behavior, I think that killed it. Because at the moment when you're explaining, you're losing. And when you have to get into this lengthy explanation of why what Joe Biden did, because he you know, immediately contacted the archives and maybe it wasn't that bad and it was in a locked garage. Um, I think when you're trying to make that explanation, you already lost. Uh, and you can keep talking, but you are not helping yourself politically. EJ, agree? Uh, not entirely. I, I think, first of all, we got to note that Mike Pence now has documents, which really makes the case interesting. Maybe there'll be a permanent special counsel now at the Justice Department just to investigate anybody who finds classified documents in their basement or garage or wherever. Um, the Pence story was a further wrinkle. I think that when Trump was resisting um, efforts to return documents that did create a plausible cause of legal action against him. It wasn't just that he had the documents. Um, it's that again and again, he seemed to say, I've given them all back. And then he didn't give them all back. So there was really a fairly strong obstruction case if they wanted to bring it. Where I agree with Megan is in the minds of a lot of people, um, you know, well, Trump had classified documents. Now Biden has classified documents. Now Pence has classified documents. I think it does reduce the political um, impact of the story. I note that at least the one poll I saw recently, it doesn't seem to have hurt Biden, particularly this new story. Of course, it's still um, very early. But I do think the Pence story will complicate Republican efforts in Congress uh, to say, well, what Biden did is the really big deal, because then they Democrats will go back and say, well, what about Mike Pence? Let's investigate that, too. Um, so it may end up in the long run being the wash that uh, Megan suggested. But I think some people in justice will still want to say what Trump did was obstruction and we can't let it go. And we'll see what happens with what they decide. All right. I think so I want to ask about. I think like maybe justice will prosecute him. I just don't think it's going to be politically relevant. And I'm not sure. I mean, it's not going to stop him from running for president again. Right. I, I just think that like as a political matter, whether whether they should prosecute him, um, whether it is wise as a matter of, of democratic legitimacy is a separate argument. But I just don't think it's going to meaningfully impact anyone's opinion about Donald Trump. Okay, Megan did it. She brought up Trump in 24. I'm sorry, I have to follow up. I, should, I, I, I wasn't going to go there. But uh, all right, so one of the, curi one of the curious things about sure the year so far is Yeah, okay, I was. Um, uh, uh, one of the curious things about the year so far, in fact, since the election, is how little we've heard from Donald Trump having gotten, said he was going to run from president. There hasn't seemed to be a lot of motion or a lot of action. Um, uh, does that surprise you? And, it's, and one thing that has seemed to take in place is it's kind of frozen the Republican field, who normally in a cycle at about this time, we begin to hear people testing the water and going to places and, and trying out themes. We're not seeing that so much. Uh, or are we? And I'm just missing it. Uh, EJ, talk a little bit about how this looks different from uh, or not uh, from your uh, long experience. Well, my sense when Trump announced his candidacy is that that was in significant part about trying to make life complicated for the Justice Department, uh, that he wanted to, you know, because there is not only the documents indictment lurking, there's also an investigation into his role in January 6th, then he wanted to be a candidate to say, well, they're going after me because of politics. And so that was what I think the early announcement was about. 
I think it's very clear there were a lot of doubts about Trump, even among people who supported Trump in the past. Why? Because they could let go of lots of things in the Republican Party. They couldn't let go of his helping them lose elections in 2022. And that's why people are looking for another Republican candidate. Megan, we have about 20 seconds left. Uh, you agree? Uh, is, this a, is this a strange start or are we just about to see the strangeness begin? Uh, I think it is going to be a very, very strange cycle. At what point have you ever had a former loser president sort of sitting in, in the middle of, of, of the primary process, bigfooting other potentially winning candidates? But I, I think EJ is right that the Republican Party is kind of done with him. Uh, now, the question is, is Donald Trump done with the Republican Party? That I am more skeptical about. But the Republican Party wishes, he fervently wishes that he would go away. Even people who previously were more on the, well, you know, at least he fights, at least he wins. Is like, well, he fights, but he doesn't win so much. You guys are, of course, great. Thank you so much. You're the immortals. We're out of time. Thank you, Megan McArdle. Thank you, EJM, for joining us this morning here on First Look. Thanks for listening. To always stay up to date with First Look, subscribe to Washington Post Live's First Look on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.